Well, good morning. Nice. That was pretty good. That was pretty good for a bunch of Presbyterians. Not so bad. I've been to Haiti with this amazing worship service. It's one of the reasons to go to Haiti is just to go to the worship service. And I'm sorry, but they, they, they make a mockery of us. They are unbelievable. They're just fired up. But that was good. We're getting there. I'm seeing a lot more hands raising happening. And see that? My wife. Thank you for that. Uh, it's good. It's good. I, I have a friend who said this great thing about worship. She said, uh, you know, I think worship is our physical relationship with God. Worship is when we give everything to him. We worship him with our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And uh, I love that. I love that. So that's a personal mission for me um, that I'm trying to grow in. So it's great to uh, get to get up here and, and, and talk to you all this morning. Um, I love that Tom gives us opportunity to do this. And it's a, it's, a, it's a privilege and it's a big responsibility. So thank you for giving me that uh, ability to do that. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have heard... But apparently, this year we're talking about life as mission. Has anybody heard that? Have you, has that made it through the pipeline yet of communication? Yes, today, uh, this year we're talking about life as mission. And we've talked about all different aspects of what that means for the Christian, that life is mission. Uh, it's mission in our marriages, it's mission with our children and our families, with our friends and our coworkers and our community, uh, even to the ends of the earth, Right? Uh, so it's a mission for us as a church to become a fully functioning biblical community. When you hear that phrase, fully functioning biblical community, think GPS, okay? Gathering together in worship, in corporate worship, where we do worship the Lord uh, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, plugging in, that means that we come together in loving community. We know each other. We have groups of people who know us and love us and care for us and hold us accountable and... and uh, and pray with us. Uh, that's the plug-in part. And then serving is the third part of that fully functioning biblical community in which we spread the gospel, we share the gospel with our lives. And when you hear that, you think all the things that we do indeed to share the love of Christ, right? You share that with your life by loving your children, by loving your husband or wife and serving and ministering to them. Uh, when you hear that, spread the gospel with your life, think... Uh, Think Rio House, the house that we uh, have in partnership with Host South Florida just down the street uh, where we, um, we, we minister to and work with uh, four uh, formerly homeless single mothers and their children. Uh, that's spreading the gospel with your words, I mean with your life. Think, uh, think Haiti where we seek to bring transformation to every man, woman, and child to see Haiti renewed and restored um, physically and spiritually and emotionally. Uh, think of India, where we seek to see justice brought to the Dalai people. These are all ways that we spread the gospel indeed. We talk a lot about those, but there's this other part, the word, spoken. Our mission is to be a fully functioning biblical community of students and of, of, of adults who spread the gospel with their life and words through their children, through our students, through our families. So mission, mission. This summer, uh, over 4th of July, as they always do, they played Saving Private Ryan. Awesome, awesome movie. And the reason I love it uh, in particular is that it really illustrates who we are as a church and who we are as believers. Because what you have is this, um, you know the story, it's actually based in spirit on a true story, uh, about a young man who was a 
in the army who had parachuted in on D-Day. And just right before that, all three of his brothers, he was the fourth, all three of his brothers had been killed on the same day in action around the world. And his mother had gotten three notices from the military in one day. And so the military made a commitment that they were going to go find Private Ryan and bring him home so that his mother wouldn't lose her last child. So they assembled this group of men, this, this sort of these elite forces that had literally just come in, uh, had just stormed the beaches at Normandy on D-Day, and they pull them together, and they say, we have a special mission for you. You have to go save Private Ryan. And so it's a great illustration of what it means to live life in mission, right? You've got all these guys from all different backgrounds with all different personalities and proclivities and gifts and abilities who, when assembled together, accomplish an incredible, amazing thing at great personal cost. And they know it. Maybe you've seen uh, the movie and maybe you recognize those men. All different kinds of guys there. There's the, there's the big, uh, lovable, tough guy with the big heart. There's the, there's the loud, loyal sergeant. There's the, there's the careful and calculated and thoughtful and cool man of faith, the sniper. You got all these personalities in there. You got the, the captain who's the, the, he's sort of the quiet storm. He's got that deep river. Uh, he's this gentle, this gentle warrior. But there's one guy in particular that I kind of relate to. One of the men that they recruited, they recruited at the last minute, and I don't know if you remember, his name was Corporal Timothy Upham. There he is. On D-Day, their German speaker and their French speaker in their group were killed. And they couldn't go on this mission deep into enemy territory in France without having someone who could speak German and French. So at the last second, literally as Captain Miller is walking through headquarters, he recruits Corporal Upham, who up until that day had been nothing but an office clerk. He'd been to basic training. He'd learned how to fire a weapon. He'd learned all the military rules and regulations. He knew how to polish his boots and everything else, but he hadn't picked up a gun since boot camp. And he'd never fought in the war. And he was terrified. And there's this great scene where he's scrambling to pick things up and gather what he needs. He grabs a German helmet by mistake and he gets his typewriter and Captain Miller just looks at him and holds up a pencil. Takes the typewriter and throws it away and off they go. And I'm going to tell you, when I think about sharing the gospel, not just in deed, but in word... I want to think that I'm Captain Miller, but I feel a lot more like Corporal Upham. Terrified, ill-prepared, paralyzed. While the war goes on around me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like that in that moment or in that season of life when you just know that you need to open your mouth and testify to the facts that you've seen about Jesus for the sake of someone that he loves. And you sit frozen while the war goes on around you. 
Well, today, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to walk onto the battlefield with the Apostle Paul again. And what's happened with the Apostle Paul is that we've seen that, uh, if, if, you, if you remember the whole story of the book of Acts, uh, it's really this, we're following the Apostles as they spread the gospel uh, throughout the world. And it kind of, uh, the major character uh, up until about Acts chapter 9 was the Apostle Peter. But then after that, Paul took over and Paul became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Pharisee. He was a, a, a Jew of Jews. He he, he followed the law to the letter. And then God changed his heart and he turned from a persecutor of Christians who he thought were preaching a false Messiah to their biggest champion. And so there he went and he went out and he started planting churches and people started coming to Christ and he was this great conquering hero in some sense. But then what happened is it's kind of like in Saving Private Ryan at the very beginning when they're in the, in the when they're in the, the, the boat and they're heading toward the shore and the closer they get, the louder the bombs get and they get closer and closer and then the bullets start whizzing by their heads and then people start going down around them. Well, that's kind of what's happening to Paul now. It's getting serious and the, the spirited debates are turning into fiery arguments and the fiery arguments have now turned into physical violence and threats against his life. And on he marches into this mission. And then, big moment, he's speaking before the council and he makes a proclamation that not only is Jesus the Messiah that they had been promised, he is not only for the Jews, he's for the whole world. And then, all rational argument goes out the door. Because they've just been told that they can't hate people. They've just been told that that which they have that they've treasured and held to themselves, that which they have used to, to, to declare themselves superior over the Gentiles was in fact a gift to them for the Gentiles. And they should have known that because God told Abraham their father that. He said, hey, Abraham, you're going to be my, uh, the father of my people and through your children, the nations will be blessed. But there were a part of those Jews that just couldn't get their minds around that. Remember that most of the people coming to Christ early on were Jews. So it's not just picking on the Jews but there was this part of these people that were bound to religion and religiosity or even to intellectual pursuit, which we'll talk about in a minute, who just couldn't get their minds around a relationship with a living God who loved everybody, even their enemies. And rational debate was over and now it was get him dead. And that's pretty much what every discussion was about as we walked into this discussion in which the Roman council or consul, tribune, tribune, is actually curious about why they're so mad at him. So they invite, he protects Paul from getting killed by putting him in jail. But then he brings in the council and he says, tell me what's wrong with this guy. And Paul wants to talk to him and he wants to explain what's going on. And they put him on trial and there begins the story. Paul facing his accuser, which he, he wanted to do. So with that in mind, uh, take a look at Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30, if you've got your Bible with you, and I hope you do. Um, 
You know if you did your personal worship this week that your passage was Acts 22.30 through 23.35. We're going to focus today on 22.30 verses 23.11, understanding that at the end of that portion, what happened was the Romans had to take Paul and protect him with an, with an army from being killed. They had to protect him as a Roman citizen from being killed. And then the story would continue as Paul marched on what looked like crushing defeat, but we know differently. So with that in mind, let's start at chapter, uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound Paul and, com- and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, we saw earlier that what really set them off was Paul's claim that he'd been commissioned by God to go to the Gentiles. And at that point, totally irrational. Verse 23, and looking intently at the council, I love that. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived life before God and all conscious that up to this day, bam, he gets punched in the face. These learned men, these leaders of their community, these spokesmen for God, all rational thought out the door. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. What's interesting about that is if you look in John 18, verse 22, um, you'll see that Jesus was struck on the mouth when he was conversing with Annas, the council, the, the high priest, for the same reason, the way that he was speaking to the high priest. And so what's going on here? What's going on here is is not just a neat observation that, wow, that happened to Paul and then it happened to Jesus. What's going on here? It happened to Jesus and then it happened to Paul. What's going on here is Paul is walking in the footsteps of his Savior. Paul is on the mission that Jesus set out before him. Paul is walking where he walked, stepping where he stepped, confronting who he confronted. And so are you and me. So are you and me. Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples and there I will be with you until the end of the age. And one of my seminary professors made this great observation. He said, you know, a lot of times, and I know this is true for me, Jesus does not do what I tell him. Like I pray for things and they don't happen or I pray they won't and they do or I pray about a job or I pray about a relationship or maybe it's some very genuinely serious things. Maybe I pray for my dying relative to come to Christ or something that you would really think would happen. But mostly I just pray for things, uh, for, for Jesus to honor my plans. And so my seminary professor says, okay, so Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples and there I will be with you. So I certainly don't mean to say that Jesus isn't with you all the time, but here's what I believe is absolutely true and biblical. And that is this, when we go where Jesus goes and sends us, he is with us 
working in our lives and answering our prayers and making all of our dreams come true. Why? Because they're not our dreams anymore. They're his dreams. They're part of his plan. They're part of his redemptive work in the world to restore it perfectly forever, not just imperfectly for a moment, which is what would happen if my prayers came true. And so here Paul goes called onto this journey with Jesus and following him. So he experiences the same thing. So then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, so I had a little debate about this. I, I uh, uh, talked to a couple different people about it. Uh, I was trying to figure out, did Paul really not know that he was the high priest? Because the high priest wore an ephod. I mean, it was hard to miss him. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's like, oh, I didn't know that was Michael Jackson. You know, it's just, it's obvious, you know. <laughs> it's obvious who this person is. So did he, did he not see him? Was he in the crowd and he couldn't see who had spoken those words to strike him? Or did he not know the high priest had ordered them to strike him? Uh, and that might be true, and it might have been a genuine apology because a lot of Jewish law was going on here, right? In the Old Testament, it said that you weren't supposed to speak disrespectfully to um, to the uh, to the ruler of God's people, right? To the leader of God's people. Um, it also said, by the way, and this is what Paul was referring to, uh, you don't strike someone, you don't punish someone who's not been convicted of a crime. So there's all these little legal things happening here. So was Paul... Uh, was Paul sincerely apologizing? Did he lose his cool for a moment? I certainly get that he's the kind of guy who might have just done that and apologized in the moment. Or was he? Was there a little rebuke going on here? Hey, uh, gosh, I didn't know you were the high priest because the high priest never would have done that to me. I don't know, but here's what I do know. I know that Paul knew his audience. Paul had educated himself. Paul was intelligent and informed and able to interact. And every setting he went into, it was amazing. When he was on Mars Hill, he could interact with the Greeks. When he was in the Sanhedrin, he could interact with them. When he was talking to common people, he could speak with them. He made himself a student. Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 9? He says, I became all things to all people so that by all means, some might be saved. Illustrated right here with brilliance as he interacts with the Sanhedrin. And again, I want to remind you you can do that too. This isn't just for Paul. So he continues on. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he knew his, uh, uh, when, when, he, when he perceived that one were Sadducees and one were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, again, he knew his audience. What does that mean in this case? Well, in this room, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees in this place. Okay. Um, to put this in sort of modern terms for you, it's almost like sort of two religious political parties. And I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. You had the Pharisees who were sort of the party of the common man. They were very learned, but... but um, uh, they believe in spiritual things, too. They believed in, in resurrection. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in all those kinds of things. The Sadducees were sort of considered the, the elitist 
intellectuals who were very tied to the written Torah. They didn't believe in any oral law or anything like that. And if it didn't say it, then it wasn't true. And so they didn't believe in things like the afterlife and resurrection from the dead and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, but mainly they battled a lot. In fact, they battled so much and their battles became so divisive, like you'll see happens right here when they almost kill Paul because they're fighting over whether to let him go or not. In other words, the truth just becomes, you know, it put, goes in the back seat while they fight over their, their, their laws and rules and, and power plays and politics. There's a third group called the Essenes who um, actually were so fed up with both of them. They said, yeah, you're corrupting the temple and the city. And they moved out into the desert to get away from them and live in caves and things. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And so let me get this straight. You have spiritual people who are sort of like moral relativists and they just believe that all roads lead to God or whatever, you know, that type of idea. Then you have people who are intellectual elitists who believe that the only thing that's real is the physical world. And then you have other people who isolate them. Wow. Nothing new under the sun. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe always led to God, but they, they did believe in these spiritual things. But they missed the Messiah. The Sadducees missed the Messiah. They believed in the law, but they missed the Messiah. So Paul takes them to the one central argument for the gospel. The only thing that matters to us as we share our faith in word. What was it? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. Do you believe in the resurrection? That's what Paul asked them. That's what Paul said the debate was all about. You can't share that which you do not have. And if you can't share your faith and belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ability to therefore resurrect your dead soul and your body then you don't have a gospel to share with your mouth. That's what he says. Paul says, if Christ isn't risen, we're fools. And then even later in the book of Acts, he says this wonderful thing to all the rulers and leaders and the Romans. He says, he basically says this. He says, you know, I don't understand. I can't get my mind around how you can believe in God and not believe he could raise someone from the dead. But oh, how we walk around, me included, with those doubts about that resurrection. Paul says the resurrection is the foundation for the gospel and that nothing else matters. When he had said this, verse 7, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, uh, of the Pharisees' party, stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Because Paul had told them the story and he'd said that he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee and everybody knew that. He was a persecutor of Christians in the name of, of their Jewish faith and his, and his Pharisaical beliefs. And then Jesus appeared to him. And a man named Ananias, not this one, but another one, a faithful man of God, prayed with him to receive Jesus. And he went from becoming a persecutor to being a champion for Jesus. 
So they said, well, how are we, who are we to say that that didn't happen? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, that's, all right, that's the pagans, that's the corrupt, that's the lost. Those were the ones uh, who you'd think would be the least likely to do this. They were ended up being the most concerned for his safety. Now, my, that might have been out of fear because they realized that whatever happened to a Roman citizen might happen to them. Afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them as some pulled at him to kill him and others to set him free. That's what's going on there, okay? They were afraid that he might be torn apart, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among the men by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, so let me paint this picture for you of a person, this person in mission. What just happened is he got in the middle of this big, violent political brawl that got to the point where it wasn't even about him. And they were fighting over him as sort of one of their political pawns. And he was nearly torn apart, it says, to the point that the Romans picked up their shields, took their swords, their spears, and stormed into the crowd and wrapped him up and carried him out by force to save his life. And where did they take him? The palace? No. They took him to the barracks. They basically took him to prison where he was alone. That was the fruit of his gospel witness, his verbal testimony to these people. He sits in the, he's sitting there alone, bloodied and bruised and broken. We have no evidence. We don't have any witness that there were other apostles there, that there were disciples standing outside with signs, picketing, yelling to him to let him know that they were there for him and that things would be okay. What we have historically is that Paul was alone. And then what happened? Jesus came and gave him these words of comfort. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him when else do you remember Jesus standing for someone remember Stephen as he was about to be stoned to death as he looked into heaven and saw Jesus and his face shone like an angel and what did he see he saw the son of man standing by the throne The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What's the message? The message is when I, the message is this. I am with you. And your mission is not finished. I am with you and your mission is not finished. Paul would live and he would continue to preach this gospel message of the resurrection of Jesus against all odds until his mission was done. And then he would go to be with Jesus. And that's what he meant when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the mission you're called to as a follower of Christ. 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. He was in the fight. In fact, he called it the good fight. Remember that? I've fought the good fight. I've, I've run the race. It is there where you find Jesus. It is there when you, where you grow in Jesus as you share this gospel. He doesn't just change people. He changes you as you share it. And it's where you live when your life is a gospel mission. So what do we do with this? You know, in Romans 1.16, somebody reminded me after the service, it says that I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I think that's clear, that we're not supposed to be ashamed of the gospel. But, but what do we do to move forward practically? I want you to take your bulletin. And uh, if you got one, I tried to get them to force you to take more of them today. Um, if you got one of these and flip it over to the notes side. If you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. But I didn't just want to give you this impassioned appeal that you should share your faith. I think, I think most of us know that. Uh, what I wanted to talk a little bit about what that is about what that looks like. And then we'll be finished. Okay, so there's four things that you need to do to get in this life of mission in word, not just deed. The first one is to embrace the facts. Embrace the facts about what we as Christians believe, and they're listed here. In general terms, there is a creator God. He created humanity in submission to himself. We rebelled against him and separated ourselves from him. And because of that, creation was corrupted and death entered into the world. But God made a way of redemption. He was motivated by his love for his creation to do this, but he was bound by his own justice. So what did he do? He appeased his justice because of his love with his own self-sacrifice. And that's Jesus. And what was his goal? It was more than just saving people. It wasn't just fire insurance. It was the restoration of his creation to peace, to beauty, to the way it's supposed to be. So do you believe that? Do you believe those things? Have you considered those things in your own life? Which is released to the second part. I embrace the facts and then I embrace their implications on me. What's my story How have these facts played out in my life? How has God intersected with me? How did the gospel come into me? How did Jesus get a hold of me? I was talking with a friend and he was giving me his testimony about how he came to Christ. And um, he said he'd grown up knowing and learning about Jesus, hearing about him in church and so forth, but he just never could embrace it. So he, he picked up the book of Matthew and he just started reading. And he said, and it didn't, it didn't take long, but Jesus came after me. Now I know him. Well, what's your story? Write it down. Write it down for yourself so that you'll know it. Third thing, we embrace the facts, we embrace their implications on us, and we embrace their implications on the people that we encounter. If it means that for me, if it means life from death for me, if it means peace instead of suffering for me, then it means that for the people in my world. Paul says this in Philippians 3. It's beautiful. He says, 
for many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears. See, Paul cried too. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you weep tears over the people who you know walk as enemies of Christ? Do you weep the tears that Jesus wept for those who were lost? When, when, when he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Think of what's loaded in that word gave. Gave, sacrificed, allowed to be killed for crimes he didn't commit, allowed to be to, to suffer, have his dignity stripped from him, allowed to have his back turned on him. For the first time in eternity, that's what gave means. His only son, that whoever would believe in him would what? Not die. God is patient, as scriptures say, and doesn't want anyone to perish. Are you that Urgent about people who are separated from him. Am I? How many of you guys saw this thing this last week? This woman, Antoinette Tuff. Who knows who that is? Antoinette Tuff. It's good that you don't know. Antoinette Tuff was a bookkeeper at a public school up north. Last week... When a 20-year-old man burst into her office with an AK-47 and 500 rounds of ammunition. Plus other things. And it turned out, as soon as she saw him coming, she called 911. So the whole thing is recorded. A 13-minute and 22-second conversation between this woman and this young man with the 911 operator sitting there just in in awe, saying every few minutes, you're doing really, you're doing wonderfully, ma'am. And this woman, Antoinette Tuff, spoke to this young man and reasoned with this young man and comforted this young man until he gave her his weapon, laid down on the floor, and asked her to go over the intercom and apologize to the students. And he had told her, he told her that no one would listen to him. And she said, I'm listening to you right now. And he said, I have no reason to live. And she said, of course you do. My husband laughed me after 33 years. I tried to commit suicide last year. Look at me now. I'm working. I'm happy. Everybody's going to hate you. Nobody's going to hate you. You did the right thing. You gave yourself up. I love you, she said. Well, let me tell you how God saved that school that day. He saved that school because that woman loved that boy before he ever walked in the door. And she loved him when he pointed that gun at her and she knew her life might be about to be gone. And she loved him when he lay down on that floor and when those those men came storming in to take him away. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if she's a Christian. I don't know. All I do know is that the very last thing she said was, that was the scariest I've ever been in my whole life. Oh, Jesus. So... But I found a report. This was this was pretty pretty awesome. I found a report 
It said this, in her first interview after the standoff, Tuff mentions that in the initial terrible moments, she thought about a sermon series on anchoring that her pastor had been preaching, and it helped her to see that Hill, the young man, was bereaved and in pain, and she was praying for him. And here's what the, the reporter who wrote this article said. I don't know anything about anchoring, but I know I want to learn. Me too. The foundation for your verbal witness is God's love for you through his sacrifice in Jesus that translates into your love for people. And when that oozes out of you, guess what? They want to know. And if they don't want to know, the offense is not you, it is the cross. And the cross alone And that's the mission, to spread the gospel with your life and words so that no offense, there is no offense but the cross. And let the cards fall where they may. And so Paul walked through many battlefields where the odds seemed to be against him, but they never were because Jesus was with him. And then the time came when his mission was done and it was time to go home. And that's the way I want to go. Don't you? We must speak. We have to report the facts about God and the things we've seen and give testimony to what he's done in us and to share the gospel of resurrection with our mouths until he takes us home. That's life and mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think now back to Captain Miller and Corporal Oppum, and I still feel like Corporal Oppum. So I pray, Lord, with these people that are sitting here with me, that together you would take us beyond just a momentary um, heartfelt passion about knowing that it's my duty to share the gospel, you, you take, take me and all of us beyond that to a, a careful, thoughtful, uh, disciplined pursuit of the facts about you and your son and the work he's done in our lives and the best way to communicate those things to the people in our world for their sake and for the sake of your kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.